Welcome to the Game Before the Money podcast, celebrating pro and college football history. In this episode, we speak with John Lobin of the Syracuse 8. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Game Before the Money podcast. I'm Jackson Michael, author of the book, The Game Before the Money, Voices of the Men Who Built the NFL. It's an oral history of pro and college football, and it's available on Amazon.com and published by the University of Nebraska Press. This year marks the 50th anniversary of the Syracuse 8 being suspended from the Syracuse University football team. The group made four basic demands and staged a brief boycott during spring practice and were later suspended for the entire 1970 season. John Loban, a member of the Syracuse 8, graciously spent a great deal of time with me giving the details about that situation and shared his experience with the Game Before the Money podcast. And I want to make clear that before we start this episode, this isn't to paint Syracuse or head coach Ben Schwartzwalder in any sort of particular context. Syracuse is a great university, and Coach Schwartzwalder is a legendary college football coach who recruited the first black Heisman Trophy winner, Ernie Davis. He also parachuted into Normandy on D-Day and received many awards for his military service, including a silver star and a purple heart. Furthermore, it's important to remember that although Schwarzwalder's name comes up here and there throughout the podcast, the appointed committee investigated the Syracuse Athletic Department as a whole, and the results of the report that we'll be discussing were about the Athletic Department as a whole. Many of you know that I like to say football history is American history. And I think John Loban's story and the story of the Syracuse A really illustrates that notion. Although 2020 is the 50th anniversary of the Syracuse A, John Loban's story and the stories of his teammates stand relevant even today. And the stories show how racial discrimination can exist even in places where one might not expect discrimination that was verified in a report commissioned by Syracuse University in 1970. And remember, this is also the football program that housed the college careers of Jim Brown, John Mackey, Floyd Little, and Ernie Davis in a time when a lot of schools banned black athletes from the gridiron. Here's some of the background on the Syracuse 8. In 1970, John Loban stood among a group of black athletes who raised questions about Syracuse's athletic department. The players were ultimately suspended from the team for their actions. They missed the entire 1970 season, and most of them never played football again. Shortly after the 1970 season ended, an investigative report ordered by the university's chancellor vindicated the players' position which not only included concerns about race, but other issues that affected all student-athletes. Let's step into the cleats of a young John Loban, 
growing up in Hartford, Connecticut in the 1960s. And imagine earning all-state football honors and being recruited by major universities to attend on a football scholarship. Once you get to your school's chosen campus, however, you experience some things that aren't quite right. You excel at your position, but you're moved to a different position or benched in favor of inferior players. You hear about the team doctor making your teammate's injury worse than it already is. And on the academic side, you aren't given the same academic opportunities as other players. These things really happened at Syracuse University. And during the spring practice of 1970, a group of young men rallied to improve conditions. All of them were black. They fought against both racial injustice and for better medical treatment for all student-athletes. And that's important to stress here. The story often gets told solely as a fight against racial discrimination, and that's certainly essential to the story. But what sometimes gets lost is the fact that these young men made gains for all student-athletes, gains that are still enjoyed today. The group became known as the Syracuse 8, and this is the story of one of those men. John Lohman grew up during the 1960s and carried a dream of playing big-time college and pro football. He starred in high school at Weaver High School in Hartford, Connecticut. He made All-State and even made a high school All-American list. He received multiple scholarship offers. He visited the University of Colorado and loved both the facilities and the scenery. Colorado likely stood as the lead suitor for Lohman's talents, until he received a surprise visit from Syracuse. I was in school one day, and one of my teammates approached me and said, there was a coach from Syracuse down in the coach's office looking for me. And I told my teammate, I ain't no coach from Syracuse looking for me. He said, yes, they are. They're down in the coach's office. So I said, okay, let me go see. So I went down there, and sure enough, it was a coach from Syracuse, Jim Shrees. He was a freshman coach for Syracuse. He was there, and he said they was interested in me, which was totally a surprise. The idea of playing at Syracuse excited the young John Lobin from the start. His hero Jim Brown had attended Syracuse, and that made it a dream school for many football players. Lobin eagerly accepted a recruiting trip to Syracuse. I met someone there who was being recruited by them as well, and that was Greg Allen. We were there for the weekend, and we didn't know each other because Greg was from Plainfield, New Jersey, and I was from Hartford, Connecticut. But within 48 hours, we hit it off so well. At the end of the weekend, you go see the head coach, then Swasswater. And at that point in time, they'll ask you, what's your interest? But before we made that visit to Manly Fieldhouse to meet with uh, the head coach, we made a pledge. I asked, uh, are you coming? And he responded, are you coming? And I said, I'll come if you come. He said, I'll come if you come. That's how I wound up choosing Syracuse because of a pledge that I had with who would eventually become my roommate and one of my best friends from that date until even now. John Lobin and Greg Allen 
arrived at Syracuse in the fall of 1968. And again, a lot of us, when we think of Syracuse, we think of Jim Brown, Floyd Little, and probably envision a culturally diverse student population. When Loban arrived on campus, however, he found that the incoming minority population at Syracuse was about 150 students out of an estimated student population of 16,000. I garner those stats from a Syracuse Surface article called 1968 and a timeline of Syracuse history once posted on the university's website. So that's less than 1% of the total student population. And Loban told me that he suspects the full minority enrollment at the time was maybe 250 to 300 students. And based on his recruiting trip and what he knew about Syracuse football in the past, he had expected a more multicultural experience at the university. It's important to point out that Syracuse wasn't much different than a lot of other colleges at the time. But it's also interesting to learn those demographics because like Loban, I would have guessed a more diverse population. No matter what the population was, however, John Loban arrived at Syracuse to play football and gain a college degree. Those of you who are regular listeners to the podcast or have read the book, The Game Before the Money, certainly know that back in the 1960s, college freshmen weren't allowed to play varsity football. Schools had freshman teams. Loban made his mark and quickly adjusted to his role on the freshman team. Syracuse originally recruited him to play linebacker, but moved him to center. John tells us a story. I played both ways in high school. I played offense and defense. I was offensive center and a middle linebacker. I was recruited at Syracuse as a defensive player. They brought me in for defense as a linebacker. What happened was the center that they had recruited, he was... I want to say probably maybe like five seven five eight at the most. He outweighed me. He was like about 230. But he was too short for the quarterback. He was like about 6'3". And I'm 6'2". So they said, John, we need you to play center. I said, look, it's your dime. I'll play wherever you want me to play. So I played offensive center my freshman year. That year's Syracuse freshman team dominated its competition. We went undefeated. We were 5-0. and We beat Army, Navy. We beat Buffalo, Cornell, and Colgate. We only played five games. I believe we had a dynamite freshman team. We just felt that we could play this game. Loban excelled at center on the freshman team. He played linebacker one day during a scrimmage against the varsity on a day when another player was absent. Let's just say John Loban made a real impact that day. One of the Syracuse eight at that time was Al Newton, is now um, Alif Mohammed. I hit him so hard that it actually stopped the entire practice. Because then when that hit him, it was a, an echo throughout the field. It was like a crack. And everybody looked and wanted to see what happened. And then they realized there was me hitting Al. I mean, I stopped him in his tracks. I used to wear my helmet low. When I hit him so hard, it actually came down and broke the skin on my nose. John shares with us a story about that play 
that his teammate Carl Lombardi told him years later at a team reunion. That was called the defining moment of the freshman team. Kyle said to me, John, your nose is bleeding. And he was telling the story. And he said, um, he said, John just took his hand, put it up on his nose and wiped away the blood and called the next defensive set. John was playing middle linebacker. In those days, that position was like the quarterback of the defense and called the defensive alignments in the huddle. There's another part to this story, however, that John's going to share with us now. Swaswaller thought that if a play was a fluke, we call it again. They figured that freshman year, and I got lucky, okay? So they called the same play and got the same results. I hit him again. Al told me, he said, when I went back to the huddle, Swaswaller asked him, he said, you let a freshman hit you like that? And Al said to him, Coach, he can play. That's the last time I ever played middle linebacker. So that's something to keep in mind throughout this story. Lobin never got a chance to play middle linebacker again, even though he clearly made an impression on his coach and his teammates. In fact, the play earned him the nickname Lobisky. His teammates combined Lobin with Nitschke after Packers' hard-hitting middle linebacker Ray Nitschke. That's the kind of impression that John's play made. One of the four points the Syracuse A eventually made was the need for more clarity and consistency about knowing and having roles on the team. Black players were often shifted around the depth chart and moved to different positions. Here are two examples from a Daily Orange article that covered a council on student life meeting in February of 1968. A spokesperson for the team stated that black players were, quote, overloaded at certain positions and had to compete against each other for playing time. That resulted in fewer blacks being on the field at any given moment. And you'll want to remember that little note as we go further into the show. Another example given at that Council of Student Life meeting in February of 1968 was about a player being denied a road trip. He played a certain position all week, and then a coach abruptly changed his position to one that was already filled for the road game. And then that Monday, the coach in question shifted him back to his original position. John Lobin gave personal accounts of how he and his teammates were affected by these inconsistencies. He told me that during his freshman year, the coaches projected what players on the freshman team might start as sophomores on varsity. They predicted two were good enough. One was a defensive tackle who was later a first-round draft choice for the Baltimore Colts, and the other was John, predicted to start at center. That's not what happened, however. Syracuse started a center much smaller than John and moved Loban to a third position defensive end, a position he'd never played before. Here's where we need to rewind the tape machine and put football into the 1960s into context. John's going to do that for us right now. It's something that, you know, they may not want to talk about, but it's the reality. 
there were three positions that black ball players didn't play. Quarterback, center, middle linebacker. I played two of those three positions. Like you said, the middle linebacker is the quarterback of the defense. The center is the quarterback of the offensive line. So I would be the one that would be dictating what the blocking assignments on offense would be and what the defensive sets would be on defense. I would be controlling that. They were considered thinking positions. We couldn't think. That was the perception. But they were also positions where you barked out the call. What they didn't feel comfortable with, they couldn't feel as though a black ball player should be yelling at white ball players. Again, this isn't a singular situation happening in America in the 1960s. Those of you who have read the book, The Game Before the Money, know Garland Boyette's story. Garland was the first black middle linebacker in pro football in 1962 for the St. Louis Cardinals, a few years ahead of Willie Lanier at that position. Garland shared about the hate mail he received about how black players shouldn't be in a position to tell white players what to do, and other hate mail questioning his intelligence. And to add to what John said about playing center after he broke down the responsibilities a center has at the line of scrimmage that many of us fans don't know about, I got to sit down with legendary San Diego Chargers center Courtney Hall at his Southwest Conference Hall of Fame induction, and he told me about the assignments he'd call before plays, and even said he occasionally told quarterback Stan Humphreys to call timeout if a blocking scheme wasn't going to work. And now here's something a lot of you might not have known or even thought about. The first African-American to play center in the NFL is generally thought to be Ray Donaldson, He was drafted by the Baltimore Colts in 1980. Dolphins great Dwight Stevenson was drafted the same year and started in 1981. Now, those of you who followed the NFC Central in the 1970s might remember Larry Terry played center for the Lions in the late 70s. And pro football reference shows that Sylvester Kroom played one game at center for the Saints in 1975. Hopefully that'll give you a better historical perspective of the center position. And now John's going to give us a little more historical context on football rosters during this time. Once again, I'd like to point out this isn't to single out Syracuse because Syracuse could be considered one of the more progressive football programs at that time. Syracuse never had any more than maybe four black ball players at any given time on the entire team. A lot of people don't realize that they think there was a lot more black ball players. There was only no more than four on average on Syracuse football program at any given point in time until we arrived in 1968. In 1969, there were 10 black ball players on Syracuse football team. That was the most in the history of the school. So at that point, when we, we had 10 black ball players on Syracuse program in 1969, in 69, 
there were five of us starting. That's the most starters on the field, like I said, at any given time in Syracuse history at that point. Loban also spoke about a suspected agreement called the twofer rule. He said that unwritten rule had been in place for many years and placed a quota on how many blacks could be in a game at any given time, and that number being two. Loban said this applied to all sports. At the start of the 1969 football season, Syracuse won three out of their first four games, including a convincing 43-7 win at Wisconsin. John talks about the significance of that game in Syracuse history. In 1969, there were five of us starting. That was the most in the history of the school. They had to get back to that two-for rule. No more than two on the field at any given time. Here's an example of that. We worked at the University of Wisconsin. The first time in the history of Syracuse University, there were three black ball players in the backfield. My roommate, Greg, John Godbo, Al Newton. They scored six touchdowns that game. After that game, we're waiting, get ready to get out of town. And, you know, we out there, you know, having a good time. You know, we just won the game. Vince Walsh Wallace said to Don Godbo, Vince Walsh Wallace said, Don, don't be happy, okay? Because you know what? It's a short walk from the power to the outhouse. Godbo never played again. Godbo scored two touchdowns in that game against Wisconsin. They were his only two scores of the season after scoring six touchdowns the previous year. Like I said, three started in the Wisconsin game. Don never played after that. Then it went down to two. You were no more than two on offense at any given time. And we found out that, you know, that rule was in existence for 40 years. Okay, because the athletic director at that point in time had been there for 40 years. That was his rule. By the end of the season... John and his black teammates found themselves entering games as substitutes rather than starters. Loban suspects that was because of politics rather than talent. I got replaced by a guy that couldn't put my socks on, okay? And that's when, you know, we started to see what was going down here. It wasn't about the talent. It was about the favoritism. So again, we're going to put things into context and John Loban's going to follow up and give his thoughts on the times at hand. This was the late 1960s in America. There was the Vietnam War, the civil rights movement, a lot of activism and a lot of opposition to that activism. John states that major universities like Syracuse wanted to move forward with the times, but also face the challenge of learning to balance the need for change along with elements within the alumni and fan base who preferred the status quo. And this isn't to group 
all of the alumni and fan base into this category, but that element certainly existed throughout the United States at the time. Martin Luther King just was assassinated in 68, you know, and Robert Kennedy was assassinated as well. We were in a cultural change at that point in time, in the late 60s. So, and then, you know, there was a lot of conversation about the lack of minorities attending majority white universities, where you needed to let more black athletes and students attend those environments. So we were trailblazers at that particular point in time. That's why that number went from, like I said, four to ten, because the change was coming, but the universities were not prepared for that. They was not prepared for what I would say was the culture shock. The fans and how uh, the student body, how are they going to react? How was that going to be received? by the fan base. And to be truthful to you, Syracuse was not prepared for that. In 1969 is when they replaced me with a player that I knew and everybody knew who wasn't better than me. That's why I said, this wasn't about football. This was about culture. Okay? And culture was not prepared for that many black athletes to come into a program that didn't sit well, as I think they believe, with the fan base. They would accept a few, but they wouldn't even accept a whole lot. So now we've got a good historical context for the social mores at the time. Now, there's more to this story than race, but race, of course, was certainly a large part of the equation. But John and his teammates were about to stand up for some things that all student-athletes enjoy today. Syracuse ended the 1969 season at 5-5. Five and five. They lost three games by a total of five points. Two of those games were against ranked teams. Spring practice of 1970 changed the lives of John Loban and his black teammates. Bear in mind that they were young men. 19, 20 years old, and in general, they're the first people in their families to have a chance to attend college. Many of them also dreamed of playing in the NFL. So when these men challenged the problems at Syracuse, problems that were acknowledged by the university in December of 1970, there was a lot at stake for them. The Syracuse made four demands and eventually boycotted during spring practice of 1970. We'll look at each of those four demands individually. The first we'll look at was related to academics. There were four demands that we made in 1970. And those four demands consisted of academic support for student-athletes, which is mandatory now for student-athletes. There was also a racial element to this demand. John points out one example of how his white teammates received better academic support. The white ball players had academic advisors. We were given student advisors. When you go away on away games, you leave on a Friday. So you miss that day of classes. So in order to catch up, 
got to be brought up. Right? So they had academic advisors. We had student advisors. A second demand dealt with the medical care football players received. Here, the Syracuse State again made advances that improved conditions for all college athletes across the board. We requested optimal medical care for injured players. Normally, you would have an orthopedic or somebody a part of your program. The medical doctor that we had for Syracuse at that time was a gynecologist for the football team, a gynecologist. John stated that a team doctor likely made a teammate's injury worse. He's about to tell us about a hand injury that a white teammate suffered. I'll blot out the players and doctor's last names, but I really felt it necessary to give John's account of what happened to fully illustrate the Syracuse Eights' concern for the health of all of their teammates. Kevin had basically crushed his hand, so he went in to see Dr. Peter. So Peter takes his hand and shakes it. Then he says, the swath water, I think he needs to go to the hospital. So Ben said, okay, fine. So he sends him to the hospital. The orthopedic says to Kevin, did somebody touch your hand? He said, well, yeah, Dr. Peter took it and shook it. He said, that butcher? Orthopedic said that. That butcher? Kevin's hand has never been the same since. He had fractured it so bad it was in pieces. With him shaking it, he moved the pieces around. Earlier in the program, we went into detail about events that spawned the third concern of the Syracuse 8. The belief that players started and were placed in certain positions for reasons other than ability. We were saying assignment of team positions based solely on merit. So you see all three of those were involved with fairness for all the ball players. John noted that some players had sponsors. He believes that those players who had sponsors were given priority over players who didn't have sponsors. The Daily Orange from September 15, 1970 noted, quote, the fact that no black athlete had a community sponsor a person who helped provide some of the gravy a player accrues to being a varsity football player, unquote. The fourth component of the boycott was a demand for a black assistant coach to be hired. This point sparked the most debate and was the most publicized. Before John speaks about that, I'll provide some background and a few names that you should know in college football history. Harvard hired former All-American William Henry Lewis as an assistant coach in 1895. He's thought to have likely been the only black assistant in the Ivy League and probably the entire country. He later became the U.S. Assistant Attorney General under President William Howard Taft. He's also usually credited with coming up with the idea of the neutral zone at the line of scrimmage. He was an assistant at Harvard from 1895 through 1906. A fun fact about Lewis's tenure as an assistant coach, Harvard won back-to-back national championships during that time. In the 1960s and going into the 1970s, black assistant coaches in NCAA football still proved 
exceedingly rare. Les Richardson coached receivers at Wisconsin, and Frank Gilliam was an assistant at Iowa. Both were hired in the mid-60s and are generally regarded as the first two black assistant coaches in NCAA history. There may have been a few others before them that I wasn't able to find, but the point is the hiring of a black assistant coach in big-time college football in 1970 was a jolting idea to many onlookers. And the reason why we went that way was because we felt that a black coach would be able to express our concerns. That's what blew the whole damn thing up. John adds that one of the concerns that the players felt a black assistant could help with involved name-calling. John gave a PG-rated example for the podcast of the name-calling, which was later confirmed in the university's report. There was a lot of misuse of words. You know, we were called boy. When we tried to tell the coaches, don't call me a boy. Call me by my name. You know who I am. Hey, boy, come over here. At that point in time, boy had negative connotations to it. I'm just giving you the right side. We would call other things, too, now, okay? So, but I'm going to try to keep it polite here. Coach Ben Schwartzwalder responded in at least two ways to the notion of hiring a black assistant coach. John Loban tells us of a comment Schwartzwalder made. Schwartzwalder made the comment, yeah, I look for one on the way home, and I look for one on the way back to school, didn't find one. That was his response to, you need to hire a black coach. Schwartzwalder also said he'd bring Floyd Little into spring practice as a coach, and I can hear some of you already scratching your heads because Little was about to enter the prime of his career with the Denver Broncos. He tried to say that Floyd was going to come in as an acting coach. Floyd comes to Syracuse every year to do his taxes. That's why Floyd was in Syracuse. Floyd wasn't there to be an acting coach. Floyd was in the area because that's where he had his taxes done. It was shortly after that that the Syracuse 8 decided to boycott spring practice. This was obviously a big story in the local media, and certainly Ben Schwartzwalder was and still is a legendary coach in Syracuse history. He did have a huge advantage on how the media portrayed the situation. And it's certainly worth pointing out there aren't too many coaches at any level who would want to be told who should be on their coaching staff. But again, remember, a primary goal of asking for a black assistant coach was to help communicate better with the coaching staff and athletic department. So the Syracuse A turned to another Syracuse Gray for help in resolving the issues. We were the outcast. We were the bad guy. We were called malcontent, troublemakers. That's how we were labeled because of the mere fact we were asking for something that we felt that was pertinent to our career. We needed somebody that we could communicate with because, you know, you're going to tell the coach, don't call me no boy. What you think going to happen? You ain't going to play no more. So a lot of stuff we had to hold back on. We didn't feel comfortable with it, but we had no advocate to explain to them that, you know, certain things you just can't say anymore, okay? We were on the forefront of, you know, 
not acceptable. We don't find it acceptable that you think you can just blatantly just call us anything you want to call us. So at that point in time, we called for Jim Brown's assistance. Asked Jim, could he come in and mediate for us? And Jim said he would. Keep in mind, again, these are 19, 20-year-old men who dearly want to play college football and dream of playing in the NFL. Jim Brown spoke with his former college coach, Ben Schwartzwalder, on the players' behalf. He said to Schwartzwalder, you need to sit down and talk to these young men because they're making a whole lot of sense. Schwartzwalder said, I don't need to sit down and talk with nobody. I'm the coach. Brown and Schwartzwalder were unable to resolve the situation, and John Loban shares with us something that Jim Brown shared with them. He told us, he said, look, I'm going to tell you guys right now. He said, if you go through with this, your chances of going to the next level ain't going to happen. This is still during spring practice in 1970. The school asked the Syracuse 8 to come back to practice and to resolve things within the athletic department. John tells us what happened when they returned. And they said, go back to the team and start to practice. We go back that day, and when we get to the practice field, now we're told that we're academically ineligible. That summer, Schwartzwalder actually hired a black assistant coach. His name was Carlman Jones. He was 24 years old and recommended by Florida A&M's legendary Jake Gaither. You can learn more about Jake Gaither in the Coach Jake Gaither, five minutes of football history episode of the Game Before the Money podcast. A September 28, 1970 Sports Illustrated article stated that Syracuse Chancellor John Corbally had ordered Schwartzwalder to hire a black assistant coach as quickly as possible. A September 1st, 1970 Daily Orange article quoted Carlman Jones as saying all he wanted to do was coach, but then found himself in the middle of a racial crisis of which he was unaware. That article stated his official role was offensive line coach on the freshman team. John Lobin told me that at one point, the Syracuse 8 were asked to sign documents saying that if they boycotted practice again, they could be ejected from the team. At the same time, a group of white players threatened to boycott if the Syracuse 8 were reinstated. John and the rest of the Syracuse 8 asked if those white players had to sign the same document. When the university responded no, the group refused to sign. Greg Allen was invited to return to the team in the fall after initially being suspended. John shares with us how his roommate responded. One player got invited back to play. That was my roommate, Greg Allen. And Greg said, what's that mean for the other ball players? He said, no, it's just you. Greg made the biggest sacrifice because he says, well, if they're not going to come back, then I'm not coming back. Throughout this time, each man had to make his own decision whether to leave school and give up hope or stay in the fight. 
we all made an individual choice. There was no one person leading us, okay? Because we all had our own lives. We made individual choices. In the season of 1970, when we boycotted, there were 10 black ball players on the team. Two of the players chose to go back and not boycott. I was raised by a single parent, a mother. If I didn't get a scholarship, most cases I would probably been in Vietnam. Because if you didn't go to school, you're going to Nam in those days. So I'm on the phone with my mother. And I said to my mother, I said, Ma, I don't know how much more of this I can take. Because, you know, we were called everything but the child of God. Being one of the first in my entire family to go to college, I was being looked upon as a trailblazer. So that was hanging heavy over my head. Am I going to fail and be looked at as a failure because I didn't graduate? When I said to my mother, I don't know how much more of this I can take. These are the words that gave me my spirit. She said, then come home. Three words. Then come home. And so her baby brother, my uncle, was coming in the house at that time. I spoke to him, and he said to me, I will be up there tomorrow to pick you up. And I said, that sounds good. And I hung the phone up. I'm sitting in a dorm in a phone booth. I hang the phone up. I sat there, and I said to myself, I said, this is my junior year. If I leave, I'll never get my degree. So, it was no more than about five or ten minutes. I called back home. And I said, Ma, I'm not leaving. I said, because if I leave, I'll never get my degree. And I'm not going to give it up. And I said, I'm going to fight this. And we all had that same challenge. The September 15th, 1970 edition of the Daily Orange announced that eight players, including John Loban, were suspended from the football team. A September 22nd, 1970 article in the New York Times stated that New York State's Human Rights Commissioner Robert J. Mangum sent Syracuse a telegram requesting that the players be reinstated to the team pending a resolution of the situation. The New York Times article also noted that Syracuse's chancellor ordered an independent commission to create an investigative report about the athletic department and the issues raised by the players. The Syracuse 8 were not reinstated that season. For some of them, it was their senior year, and they never played another down of football for Syracuse again. The investigative report came out in December of 1970, after Syracuse finished the season at 6-4, and four. John Loban tells us the verdict. They put together this 13-member commission. They put together a 65-page report. And in the end of the report, they said 
Dan Cusay was right. Institutional racism exists and not worthy of an institution of this stature. We were right, but we paid the price. A December 9th, 1970 article in the New York Times quoted the report and also said that the committee made nine recommendations. And one of them mentioned giving the players an additional year of eligibility. However, it's apparent that that wasn't followed up upon. Another recommendation suggested that a new code be written that ensured that athletes would have the same rights as all other students. The article stated that the investigation included 28 hearings and 40 witnesses, and transcriptions of the interviews totaled over 600 pages. The committee interviewed current and former players, all of the coaches, the athletic director, and Syracuse's chancellor. John and Greg Allen were the only two of the Syracuse Eight to play again. John returned with only five days of practice to play against Boston College in a nationally televised game. He said an NFL scout told him he was in line to make it to the NFL. Yet when you search NFL history for the names of the Syracuse Eight, John Loban, Greg Allen, Al Newton, Bucky McGill, Richard Bulls, Dana Harrell, Larry Womack, John Gobble, and Dwayne Walker. You won't find those names. Loban believes the public perception of the Syracuse 8 created an obstacle to playing in the NFL, CFL, and even on semi-pro teams. He cited examples of players being released from teams' camps after coaches found out they were members of the Syracuse 8. The Syracuse 8 risked a lot to stand up, and for a long time, the relationship between the players and the school was fairly distant. Syracuse has since honored them with the Chancellor's Medal for Courage. The members of the Syracuse 8 were also honored with letter jackets to acknowledge their spots on the 1970 team. That happened in 2006. Loban says he holds no animosity and feels a deep connection to the university. When we received the Chancellor's Medal from Syracuse, I made a statement to Bill Roden, who was at the New York Times at that time. I said, this is one thing. I said to Syracuse, I forgive you. You took my heart but I couldn't let you have my soul. Today, you give me back my heart so I can let you be a part of my soul. I love that game. I put my heart into it. Blood, sweat, and tears. And I gave it, that old cliche, 110%. You got that every down, every play, John told me that he believes there's a reason why he and Greg Allen met on their recruiting trip. They were meant to be there and meant to come to Syracuse at that place in time. He says he and his teammates paid the price for doing what was right, but it was well worth the cost. 
question has always been asked. Would you do it again? Yes, I would. Because justice is the truth. And I've always lived to be about the truth in whatever I've done. I still have my integrity. I still understand my purpose. What I did take from it applied to my journey. Matter of fact, I became a commissioner with the Commission on Human Rights and Opportunities here in the state of Connecticut. When I made the statement that day I made the choice to continue forward with this boycott, I stated so no one else will ever have to go through this again. That's my sacrifice. Because I was there to open the doors, but I was there to keep them open. And for that, yeah, I paid based on monetary, but I still have my integrity, and I said I still have my belief that I will always know I was fighting for right, for justice, and not support injustice. My journey is about justice, not injustice. A special thanks to John Loban for interviewing for the podcast and sharing his incredible experience as a member of the Syracuse 8. You can learn more about the Syracuse 8 in a book called Leveling the Playing Field, and it includes interviews with the players, and the book goes much deeper into the story. That book is available on Amazon.com, as is the book The Game Before the Money. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Game Before the Money podcast. Transcriptions of podcasts and many other football history articles are available at thegamebeforethemoney.com. Podcast transcriptions are powered by our transcription partner, Sonics. S-O-N-I-X. You can visit sonics.ai to learn more about their transcription services. 